As Nigeria's 2019 general election approaches, preparations are ongoing to deliver an election. What is the state of these preparations? How should civil society engage in the election process before elections? I'm joined by Mr. Inesit Chikumwa, who is the Regional Director for West Africa at the Ford Foundation. I will ask Mr. Chikumwa about building civil society capacity and what can be done during the next few months to ensure continued improvements to Nigeria's elections. This is Leaders' Voices from the Leaders of Africa Project. Leaders' Voices is a series that focuses on pertinent topics in governance with in-depth thought leader interviews. My name is Peter Panar, and I am your host. My guest, Mr. Innocent Jikuma, was the founder and leader of the Clean Foundation in Nigeria. During his tenure at Clean, he made major contributions to promoting public safety, security, and accessible justice. Mr. Chikuma has a wealth of experience in civil society and presently serves as the regional director for West Africa at the Ford Foundation. He arrived at the Ford Foundation in 2013. We will talk about his interest in civil society work during the interview. Mr. Chikuma is joining me via Skype from Lagos, Nigeria. Welcome to the Leaders of Africa Project. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start a little bit about your interest in civil society and what really made you interested in getting involved in civil society work. Because as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a broad range of experiences of civil society. So what made you interested in doing civil society work at the outset? Well, uh, it dates back to my days in the student movement. My undergraduate degree was in the University of Nigeria in the eastern part of Nigeria. I was involved in the student union politics, was at various times the speaker of the student union, University of Nigeria, and also the Senate president of the National Association of Nigerian Students. And under that, um, under those platform, I became involved in the struggle of uh, Nigerian students against military rule, against um, the uh, structural adjustment program of the IMF and World Bank. And as a result of that, those of us who were considered the ringleaders were expelled from the university. Some of us were detained for days and months without trial. And it was while we were going through that that we got free legal assistance from the then mainstream and, in fact, the pioneer human rights organization in Nigeria a civil liberties organization, which enabled us to win the case in court, went on to graduate uh, in the university. So when I graduated in 1991, uh, I felt the least I could do was to volunteer to this organization that uh, saved my my career, as, uh, as it were, at the time. I wanted it to be a one year or maximum of two years, uh, if you like, moral atonement. But I found mm-hmm. myself uh, liking the work uh, CLO was doing at the time, uh, which was uh, um, promoting human rights and giving free legal assistance to victims of uh, rights uh, abuse. And uh, was started, uh, say, one year or two year stint. Uh, I saw me staying back in CLO for um, for six years. Uh, I left in 1997 to found Clean Foundation the following year. So I will say 
Um, my involvement in civil society is a continuum from what uh, I was doing in the university uh, where I was involved in student unionism. Now, like you, did many of your peers become interested in civil society work or did you find them going into other careers, maybe related or maybe unrelated business or other words? Was there a big movement from students at the time going into similar lines of work that you went into? I would say quite a number of us are in fact a generation of us who graduated from the student movement went uh, on to become active in the larger Nigerian civil society movement. And if you realize this was uh, at a time of um, transition within the world socialist uh, movement, this was a time Gorbachev was implementing Perestroika uh, and Glasnost. This was a time uh, the Berlin Wall was coming down. So uh, a lot of student leaders who were involved uh, in leftist organize, organizing uh, back in the school, uh, naturally transited to um, the then nascent uh, human rights uh, movement, which was beginning to gain uh, foothold. Uh, and I can count many of us, the uh, Imez Azuz, who was the uh, the president of the National Association of Nigerian Students, the Lechi Mobani, who was uh, the president of the student union at the University of Nigeria and Suka. In fact, quite a um, uh, number of us, about five to six, uh, left from the same university and joined the civil liberties organization and basically transformed the organization from um, a traditional human rights organization that focused on uh, research, uh, advocacy, and litigation to becoming a much more vigorous organization that challenged military rule uh, in Nigeria at the time, and indeed led the struggle for end uh, to military government in, in Nigeria. So yes, I was not only uh, the one that was attracted to this trajectory, uh, it was a generational movement, uh, uh, and in my view, quite uh, a natural transition from the uh, student movement to the larger civil society movement. And so you founded Clean Foundation in Nigeria, and you just mentioned that earlier. What led you to set up Clean in the first place in the late 1990s? So it was, again, um, a function of uh, the work I did when I was with the Civil Liberties Organization. I was asked to lead this uh, project uh, at the time, which was uh, reporting on uh, abuse of human rights by the police, monitoring and reporting it. I remember it was uh, a grant um, the, the organization got from the Canadian Center for Human Rights and Devo Democratic Development. Mm -hmm. And because of um, the nature of the military government at the time and the brutality the police exhibited in, in their work, uh, not many people wanted to lead that project. But coming straight from the university and being a victim of uh, police abuse on, uh, of human rights, I was naturally attracted uh, to it uh, because I, uh, I came face to face to um, detention conditions in the Nigerian police and prisons at the time. So I, uh, I started um, leading the research and uh, 
was responsible for documenting, reporting, and publishing the patterns and prevalence of uh, human rights abuse by the police. And I, in the course of doing that work, I came to uh, realize that the majority of the police officers who were involved in human rights uh, abuse in Nigeria at the time uh, did not go into it out of sadistic intention, if you like. Many of them were hampered by the uh, institutional challenges they, they, they face uh, in doing their work. They were saddled with investigation of uh, crime, uh, which was rising at the time without corresponding uh, resources to do the work. So they basically ended up abusing the rights of, uh, of those they came in contact with in a bid to produce the result the society uh, put pressure on them to do. So I got me thinking that um, we needed um, to do something uh, uh, in the way of uh, training them uh, on human rights. And uh, this was also within the period of the UN uh, decade for human rights education. Mm -hmm. uh, this was at the time when uh, organizing human rights training for law enforcement and security agencies were fashionable at the time. So I convinced the CLOs, the civil liberties organization I was working with to organize such a training, uh, which we held, uh, I think it was in 1994. It was very successful. The police wanted uh, more. But the following year, while we were planning um, a continuation of, of the program, uh, we were faced with um, a national situation where the military had uh, killed Kensaro Uwe and eight other Ogonis, and the police uh, naturally were used to repress uh, people who were mobilizing to protest against that uh, extrajudicial killing. And uh, CLO, being a mainstream human rights organization, was equally drawn um, into the, that uh, activism against military rule. So that made it difficult for the CLO to, um, to work with the police to organize this uh, training that we started in 1994. And it made me realize that uh, you couldn't do human rights education for law enforcement and security officials under an advocacy platform because the uh, the activities of uh, the organization in terms of uh, monitoring and uh, advocating for a change of military rule conflicted with uh, the kind of cordiality you needed to impact uh, an institution like the police uh, and improve on its human rights record. So the following year being 1996, I received the Reebok International Human Rights Award and with the prize money of $25,000, I set up Clean Foundation, which was at the time known as Center for Law Enforcement Education in Nigeria. So it was, um, the work I did uh, in, in civil liberties organization, the contradiction inherent in doing human rights education for police under an advocacy platform that naturally pushed me to setting up uh, an organization that will focus on working with the police from the inside to foster a change. Because this was also a time when most uh, human rights organization in Nigeria focused on the demand side, which was naming and shaming and reporting. Mm -hmm. And the police had been pushed to a situation where they admitted that they have a, a human rights problem and was basically at the time crying out for help 
to build its capacity to respond to the situation. So Clean saw that opportunity and um, uh, was set up to basically drive that. So how did things change after military rule ended? Did that change your relationship and Clean Foundation's relationship with some of the major stakeholders? How did that improve or not improve the political environment in which you were working in at the time? Yeah, well, so the, the, the theory of a change that, uh, that drove the formation of Clean, if you like, was that with the transition we had at the time it was from transition to civil rule. You know, we had a military government after the death of Abata that was committed to uh, transiting a power to civil rule and realizing that uh, if they did go ahead to honor their commitment to handing over a year down the line, the police will become the public face of, of the state because in a democracy, the police is the police uh, public face of, of the state, and people use what the police do and do not do to judge whether there is indeed a democracy um, or not. So we felt that having worked under the military for a continuous period uh, 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 in excess of 20 years, they needed to pre be prepared to play in that uh, new environment. And we took the debate to go ahead and do it at a time when people felt, oh, you couldn't go and work with um, an agency that was working in Kahoot with the military mm -hmm. to repress the, the people. But we, uh, we felt um, we were justified to do that because we are on the, uh, on the eve of an elected civilian government and needed uh, to, uh, to, to, to do that work with the police. Down the line, after we uh, set up clean, many of those who doubted it or felt we shouldn't do it uh, turned around to embrace it and realized that it was uh, something that was needed uh, at the time. Now turning to some more recent work that you're doing, currently you're with the Ford Foundation as the regional director, as I mentioned in the introduction. What are mm -hmm. some important projects that the Ford Foundation has ongoing in West Africa and in Nigeria as well? Yeah, so um, in the West Africa office of the foundation here, we have a, a strategy that um, revolves around the reduction of inequality and the key drivers of inequality we identified um, in the region included um, uh, lack of voice and participation uh, of vulnerable groups in the uh, in the political process and vulnerable groups uh, we mean mainly women and uh, young people the region had advanced to an extent where almost all countries indeed all countries in the region had become democratic in the form of having periodic uh, uh, election but if you look at the quality of the democracy um, it excluded uh, women it excluded uh, young people, particularly in our focal countries of Nigeria and uh, Ghana. So drawing from that, we felt that focusing on supporting women and young people to build networks, movements, and mechanisms that will enable them to participate in the political process in elective capacity will mm -hmm. be one way of contributing to 
deepening democracy and reducing inequality in terms of voice and participation. Another area is education attainment. You find a huge inequality uh, in both access and quality of education that um, poor people and vulnerable groups receive compared to those uh, the rich receive. When we were in, in high school and even up to university, the public schools were the meeting ground of the children of the poor and the rich. But uh, over the years, because of uh, the collapse of uh, the social welfare system and funding of uh, education and, um, and social welfare programs, the public schools were run down. And uh, in preference, the elite and, and the wealthy set up private schools to basically take their kids to. So you have a situation where from nursery school up to university, the, the kids from wealthy homes uh, and those from, uh, from poor homes have no meeting ground until they graduate and come to the public space for, for, for jobs where the children of the rich have uh, a head and shoulder start. So part of the, uh, the program we have uh, on our youth transition program is investing in skill education and supportive infrastructure that will enable young people, particularly those from poor and vulnerable homes, to successfully transit into world of work or further education. And then the third uh, program area deals with uh, fiscal justice, ensuring that the rich abundance of the region in terms of minerals are used, uh, the proceeds from them are used to address the needs of majority of people who are poor and vulnerable. So those are the three uh, program areas of, uh, of the Lagos Office of the Ford Foundation. But the key one that runs through all of them is voice and participation, because uh, people, a majority of the population, women and young people, basically do not have voice, do not get to participate in platforms where decisions about their daily lives and livelihood are made. So for those that are not aware of how Ford Foundation works, what is the structure of the Ford Foundation? How does it engage local stakeholders and provide financial and professional and other services that you provide? How does that relationship work? What does the structure look like? Well, as you probably know, Ford is a non-operational foundation, which means we don't uh, actually get directly involved in the work that we support. Uh, is mm -hmm. through the grants that we make to our grantees and partners who are the ones um, in the forefront of doing this work. So we make sure that they get uh, the resources they need through grants to get on uh, with the work within clearly defined uh, strategies and goals that align with those of the foundation. And how does your work differ now that you're at the Ford Foundation from what you were doing when you were involved with the Clean Foundation, for example? Uh, essentially, in a, um, a number of ways. One is that uh, while I was in Clean, I was at the forefront of the work. Uh, it was an operational foundation. We deal with the issues uh, directly, whereas uh, at the foundation, we sort of stayed back and provide the funds uh, uh, and other resource support that our partners and grantees need uh, to, to do the work. So that is one major um, and very significant uh, difference between what I'm doing now and what I used to do uh, uh, in clean. Then the other one is that in Ford, uh, 
we are we are an endowed foundation uh, and we uh, have the money to put to the issues uh, we care about whereas in clean we had to um, look for funds write proposal um, seek donors that will support it raise the funds and implement it again this is a, a very huge difference if you know what i mean uh, mm -hmm. in the world of uh, ngos uh, absolutely uh, fundraising is very significant but in the foundation uh, i don't have to worry uh, about uh, about that above and beyond this uh, we're all committed to the same goals of uh, social change uh, except that we're using different strategies uh, and approaches in pursuing it. Mm -hmm. So across the West African region, you, you've mentioned the issues of participation and providing and emphasizing the importance of voice in democratic processes and political processes more mm -hmm. broadly. Looking across West Africa, how would you assess election quality at this point? Are there countries that have seen improvements? Are there countries that have stayed the same? Or are there countries that have declined in election quality? So looking broadly at the outcomes of election quality, what would you say are some of the differences across West Africa today? Okay, so I would say in general, West Africa has um, made significant progress in the um, democratic uh, project. Uh, I remember in the late 80s and early 90s, while I was in the student movement, uh, all but one country in West Africa was um, under some kind of uh, democratic uh, rule, which was Senegal, because Senegal mm -hmm. never experienced uh, a military rule. And fast forward to today, where all countries in the region, the 15 of them, can be classified uh, as democratic if you judge uh, the periodic uh, conduct of, uh, of, uh, of elections. Uh, but if you look at the quality of uh, the democratic uh, experiment uh, in each of uh, the countries, uh, you begin to see um, some variations. Uh, quite significant variations uh, at that, uh, even though the region has made uh, progress in, uh, again, achieving the uh, democratic milestone of uh, inter-party alternation of power. I think about five to six uh, countries in the region, namely Ghana, Senegal, Nigeria, Benin Republic, uh, Côte d'Ivoire, and Mali have all uh, had uh, opposition parties uh, come to power at various times through semi-peaceful conduct uh, of election. But in the terms of uh, representation and inclusion, uh, one will single out uh, Senegal as a country that has made uh, the most important uh, or most significant uh, progress because apart from being the only country in the region that never experienced uh, totalitarian or military dictatorship, it has also gone ahead to ensure effective uh, representation of, uh, of women in its politics, especially mm -hmm. at the parliamentary level. As we speak, about 43% of uh, 
Senegalese parliament um, made up of, uh, of, of, of women, uh, which uh, ranks it among the highest um, uh, in Africa, with the, uh, with the only country being higher than it, I, I think being uh, Rwanda, where you have over 50% uh, representation of, uh, of women. And also, if you look at the role young people play in the electoral process of uh, Senegal, uh, is again quite significant. Bring, beginning with uh, the most recent uh, election in 2012, where uh, an opposition party led by current president Macky Sall came to power through a groundswell of uh, youth organizing a movement building under the banner of uh, Yanama, enough is enough. Uh, young people, you know, stepped to the plate and uh, drove that transition against all expectations when people had given up uh, uh, hope that uh, Abdulwade uh, would um, go and they forced him to, um, to abandon the uh, the third time agenda he had, uh, and an opposition party came to power. So Senegal will be my number one uh, country in terms of uh, democratic consolidation. Mm -hmm. uh, following uh, Senegal, I would also uh, mention Benin Republic, though mm -hmm. it's um, not often talked about. Uh, I guess people focus a lot on, on, on Senegal and Ghana, but uh, but the Republic has also had a history of uh, consistent, smooth elections uh, and with opposition party coming to power um, at various uh, occasions in the electoral process. And then, of course, you have to include uh, Ghana, mm -hmm. which um, has grown to be a matured uh, democracy in the region. It has uh, had an unbroken, uh, peaceful conduct of elections for a period of uh, 26 years now, since 1992, when um, Rawlings uh, organized uh, an election. And we have seen opposition parties take over government at various times. So those three, and you can also include in that miss uh, the recent experiment in Liberia, mm -hmm. where President Khalif uh, Johnson successfully completed her tenure of two terms organized election in which uh, an opposition party led by uh, the football star George Ware won and has been sworn in without uh, any major conflict. Nigeria could also uh, come to mind, although its own trajectory has been less peaceful than others, but at least it achieved the democratic milestone of inter-party alternation of power in 2015. Mm -hmm. though still mired in various uh, conflict and low-intensity war. So in general, the region has made progress, but some countries have uh, uh, made much more significant progress. Than now, thinking about West Africa as well and this issue of improvements versus some stagnation perhaps in some countries, in your view, what are some of the common challenges that African countries in West Africa are currently facing around democracy-related issues, election quality-related issues? I would say the, um, the significant challenge that um, all countries in West Africa have faced in terms of uh, democratic consolidation is uh, 
the question we ask in Nigeria, where is the democracy dividend? Mm -hmm. uh, a generation of people, particularly my generation, spent our adult life fighting for democracy, fighting against oppressive rule, with the understanding that if we achieve democratic rule, things will improve significantly beyond uh, civil and political rights or rights to vote uh, and all of that, that economic, uh, social, and cultural rights will uh, improve. But that has not happened. So mm -hmm. it has led to a situation where people across the region are beginning to ask themselves the question, is this democracy? And right now, the soul of Africa, if you like, uh, is uh, under contention between two visions of uh, development in the region. You have the vision of a one-party strong man leader uh, with no opposition in the horizon, championed by the likes of Kagame in, uh, in Rwanda and Ethiopia. Mm -hmm which seems to be delivering uh, in terms of um, economic development, uh, improvement in the quality of life of the people, even if they don't seem to enjoy uh, a lot of civil and political rights. So that is uh, one vision uh, which appears to be gaining ground and drawing significantly from the Chinese uh, experience. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other vision of uh, plural democracy, multi-party system that seem to align more favorably with societies where you have multi-ethnic and multi-religious groups such as we have uh, in West Africa, but has struggled to deliver on concrete and significant things that people care about, such as youth employment, improvement in quality of education, healthcare, and other social services they seem not to have done too well. So right now, African people are turning between these two visions. Mm -hmm. The one party strong arms, president for life vision, which you have uh, predominantly in East Africa, and the more plural uh, vision that uh, uh, West African uh, societies uh, offer. And what would determine the one that will be durable at the end of the day is the degree to which uh, leaders, especially those who are running uh, multi-party democracies, uh, their ability to deliver the tangibles that people care about, because people are beginning to ask, is it democracy that will eat? And if you look at support for democratic system of government, even though it is still the most preferred, if you look at the degree of uh, support for it, it's also reducing. I remember when Afrobarometer conducted its first round of survey uh, in the region, support for democracy in Nigeria was uh, 80%, four out of every five respondents mm -hmm. preferred democracy as a preferred system of government. Right now it's down to about 65 or so percent. And uh, uh, dictatorial system of government, uh, which is also, uh, which uh, is rising, because of this critical question of democracy dividend. Now, thinking specifically about Nigeria, Nigeria is going to hold general elections next year. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. in your mind, uh, how are the preparations going for this 
election process that's happening just next year? Well, the, the Electoral Management Board, the Independent National Electoral Commission, has come up with a, a timetable for its election, for the elections, which it seems to be uh, adhering to, unlike the previous election, where by now people are getting agitated about uh, registering to vote. With the continuous voters registration exercise mm -hmm. the body is implementing, uh, people are going about and registering. And at the last count, uh, I read somewhere that about 5 uh, million uh, additional voters who turned 18 within this uh, uh, period have been uh, have registered and gotten their, their votes. So on that uh, area, which uh, you'll agree with me, is a significant milestone in the uh, process of conducting election. I think they have uh, done well. Uh, but uh, as is often the case, right now we don't seem to have uh, a concrete legal framework for organizing the election. The National Assembly passed an amended electoral act uh, or bill which has not been signed by the president. And there are a number of contentious issues in the bill which may not be signed by the president when they present it to him as they prefer the National Assembly election coming before the president because of the fear that uh, if the presidential election is conducted before that of National as, uh, Assembly, mm -hmm. that they may be uh, singled out for, for reprisals or oppression. So if the president doesn't sign the, uh, the Electoral Act or the amended version soon, it means we will be going into an election or preparing for an election without a clear legal framework for doing that. And INEC required them to conclude the amendment on time so that the um, the issue of migrating into a full uh, electronic voting system will come to be because it requires a legal framework for that to happen. In previous election, especially the last election, you had an incomplete um, uh, electronic system. So you have uh, electronic accreditation, but um, manual voting, and then manual transmission of uh, electoral ballot. So they want everything to be made electronic, but it requires a legal framework. And if this uh, uh, debate about whether the president will sign the electoral act or not continues, it would delay preparation uh, on that front. And then you will also have to factor in the issue of conflict across the country, not just in the Northeast where you have uh, Boko Haram insurgency, which the government claimed to have, uh, have significantly degraded, but with the recent adoption of about 110 school girls, it means that the insurgency group is still um, active, still virile, and still uh, mm -hmm. capable of mounting dramatic attacks beyond the abilities of security agencies to respond to. And if that continues to the uh, election period, it would uh, hamper the smooth conduct of the election. And beyond the Northeast, you still have the herdsmen, farmers clashes That's in right. the Middle Belt and uh, drifting to the southern part of the country. All those need to be uh, contained before the election. If not, they will affect the uh, conduct of the election. Now, last question. How has civil society been able to shape or not shape some of these preparations for the 2019 elections in Nigeria? 
I think civil society has done it best within the rubric of election observation, which is uh, arming yourself with a, a notebook and a pen and being bystanders in the conduct of the affairs of, uh, of their country. So they've continued to do that. But the, the civil society role in the electoral process, you know, has become predictable mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that uh, you have many of them now uh, who observe these elections and file reports within the rubric of um, uh, election observation and they're having a mechanism called situation room where they periodically engage the key role players in the electoral process to give them feedback about what they are hearing from the field and periodically issue statements uh, about their concern, about the level of preparations or lack of it. They, uh, I would say civil society has uh, done well. They are taken seriously by uh, INEC. However, my quarrel with uh, civil society is that uh, civil society groups is that they appear to have uh, pigeonholed themselves into using basically one tool mm. uh, in their work around uh, elections in Nigeria, which is election uh, observation. Mm -hmm. And with many of civil society actors in the fray now, the reports that they issue at the end of uh, observation of election uh, is also not, um, they appear not to speak uh, with one voice uh, during this general election because you have each of them uh, issuing different reports which may be contradictory and in a, a widely contested election as one feels that the 2019 election will be is something that they need to um, watch and perhaps look for different ways of uh, ensuring that they have uh, cohesion within their rank. So mm -hmm. other than that, yes, um, they have continued to, um, to monitor elections, issue credible reports. But in my view, Nigerian people want much more significant engagement. They want mm -hmm. bodies that can mobilize them to play more active role, um, be in a position to, if you like, influence in a more significant way the outcome of the elections. And civil society groups have not really offered them those platforms that could enable them meaningfully engage beyond just voting and going home. Mr. Takuma, thank you for speaking to the Leaders of Africa Project. All the best with your present work at the Ford Foundation. I hope you will speak to us again in the future. Thank you. Mr. Takuma is the Regional Director for West Africa at the Ford Foundation. Do you have thoughts on the preparations for Nigeria's upcoming general elections? We want to hear from you. Share your questions and comments at yourvoice@leadersofafrica.org. And that's it for me, Peter Pinar, on this episode of Leaders' Voices on the Leaders of Africa Project. Thank you for joining me. Until next time. <laughs>